Hello, everyone, and welcome to Flyover State Science, a podcast where two Midwestern scientists demystify the coolest science out of the middle of the country. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Jackie. And we're here to do the research so that you don't have to. Welcome to the fourth episode of Flyover State Science. Today we'll be talking about DNA and genetic engineering. And now, if you're interested in getting more Flyover State Science content, please feel free to visit us on our website, flyoverstatescience.com, where you can read all of our episode show notes, download all of our episodes, subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play if you aren't already. Please subscribe and read blog posts where we go a little bit deeper into the science that we talk about in the podcast itself. And thank you to everybody who's already been visiting and has liked our Facebook page. We really appreciate the support, and it keeps us going. We've been feeling the love, and it's been such a rewarding feeling to watch our friends and family listen to the show and have such positive response from it. So please keep sharing it with your friends and supporting science in the flyover states. So for today's episode, we're first going to be talking about DNA in general, because a lot of the topics we're going to cover in the future, such as genetically modified organisms or personalized medicine and genomics, relate to DNA. So we just wanted to talk a little bit about DNA itself and share an interesting historical story with you. And later we'll be talking to Dr. J. Vivian about how we use genetic engineering in the lab. So in the first part of today's show, we have a story for you, and it is a story of fame, betrayal, and DNA. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> so the importance of DNA cannot be overstated. It is the information molecule that contains all the information necessary to make an organism. And for our story, we're going to go back to the early 1950s. And at this time, there was some growing evidence that DNA was the hereditary material. And what that means is it's the material that's passed down from cell to cell and from organism to offspring that contains all of the genes within it or the genetic information within it. So we knew that DNA was likely this hereditary material We knew what it was made of. There were these phosphate backbones. There were these sugar, these ribose rings in DNA. And we also knew that there were four chemicals that they called bases. There was adenine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine. You'll commonly see these abbreviated as A's, T's, C's, and G's. And the only thing that they'd known at this point about the amount of these bases in DNA is that The amount of A's and T's were always the same, and the amount of G's and C's were always the same. So they thought that these were somehow linked to one another, but they didn't know how. And so they had a lot of reason to think that DNA was really important, and yet there was no structure for DNA. We had no idea what it looked like. And so at this time, they set out to figure out what the structure of DNA was, and it was a really exciting but very tense time in research. And into this exciting, intense time walked a young scientist named Rosalind Franklin. She was returning to England to work at King's College after establishing herself as a very successful scientist 
in Paris working in coal chemistry. While working with coal and with carbon, she used a technique called X-ray crystallography. And it's a method where you have a crystal of molecules that you shoot X-rays at and the diffraction pattern created by kind of hitting or bombarding this crystal with these X-rays could be used to kind of reverse the process and figure out what the structure of the molecule was. But she left all of that behind to go home to England. And so she went back home to England and started working at King's College where they wanted her to use her excellent x-ray crystallography skills to study DNA to try to get its structure. And there was a lot of people trying to figure out the structure of DNA, so it was a whole scientific community working on this problem. So she sat down and she started work. It said that she was a really rigorous, really talented experimentalist. She was very careful with her data. She even built her own equipment. And it said that she produced unbelievably beautiful x-ray photographs and that her data was just magnificent. Even though she was very successful at this time and she gathered lots of data on DNA and the structure of DNA, she ultimately decided after just a few years to leave King's College because she really wasn't happy there. It really was an environment that she felt like she was really welcomed in. And in particular, she didn't get along with a fellow colleague named Maurice Wilkins. It's said that they just clashed in personality and there was some miscommunication between the two. Unfortunately, it just ultimately led to her deciding to leave King's College. In early 1953, as she was finishing up analyzing her data, trying to come up with a model for the structure of DNA, James Watson and Francis Crick published an article where they correctly put out the model for DNA, which is a twisted helix or a double helix. And she saw that article and she had met Watson and Crick and had worked with them and talked with them about the structure. And she saw this model that they put out and it agreed with her data and she thought they got it. It's completely consistent. Great job. We can all move on. What she didn't know was that just two months before they published that seminal paper, her colleague Wilkins had in fact showed Watson and Crick important pieces of her data that led Watson and Crick to arrive at the final structure. Her data was absolutely essential in establishing that the molecule was helical and that it was anti-parallel. So the two sides of the double helix went in opposite directions. And without her work, it's not certain that they would have ever arrived at that conclusion. Because some of the models that Watson and Crick had been showing around before they stumbled onto Rosalind Franklin's data, they would build models and stuff in common areas, and it was entirely different from the double helical strand that we're all so familiar with now. There were a lot of really, really wrong models of DNA that were running around at the time, uh, which is fine, some of them, some of which even included three-stranded coils and things with the bases on the opposite side of what we now know is true. Yeah, there are some really funky models. Kind of like to see it in real life. I think the papers are out there. Linus Pauling's three-stranded model still published. <laughs> oh, Linus. Well, there's a reason that we leave <laughs> data that we found to be incorrect available, though. I mean, it's worth yeah. it to see the process by which we came Absolutely. to it. And it's not inherently a bad thing that they looked at her data. In fact, Franklin even talked to Watson and Crick candidly about 
her data in the fact that um, the phosphate backbones have to be on the outside. And they had previously thought that these backbones were on the inside. And she said, no, 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 no. No, they got to be on the outside. And so she was freely talking about these things. The problem was is that her data was shared without her knowledge. And her work, which was so important, was never acknowledged by them. Rosalind Franklin then went on to work at a different university, and she switched fields entirely. She only spent two or three years in the field of DNA research and then moved on to studying plant viruses. But tragically, her career was cut short when she was diagnosed and died from ovarian cancer at the young age of 37. So very short career and very short life for very talented scientists. And a very huge impact. And the story only got worse and the betrayal only grew as time went by because Watson and Crick were awarded the Nobel Prize for determining the structure of DNA alongside Maurice Wilkins. And no one mentioned her contribution at any point. It wasn't until later when James Watson published a book where he actually drug her name through the mud and suggested that she wasn't even intelligent enough to analyze the data herself. Fortunately, a lot of people have come out of the woodwork in support of Rosalind Franklin and just setting the record straight that she played a really important role in collecting that data that really informed the structure of DNA. And that not that the other three shouldn't be acknowledged for their work, but that she should be included amongst those ranks as well. And we know much more now, which is, which is good. History will slowly write itself. But you may be wondering, why do we even need the structure of DNA? Why was there such a rush to have this information? And if we already know what it does, if we already know that it's hereditary, that... Um, it can influence certain traits that we can see passed down. It may seem like an arbitrary sort of thing to worry about. What does it look like? What is the structure? But in fact, the structure is really important and we can learn a lot from it. Yeah, inherent within the structure and even from the very earliest papers looking at the model, the structure of DNA, they could already see how it had this really natural mechanism for replication. And now we understand better how it interacts with proteins. And also, understanding the DNA structure um, itself as a helix can also help us better understand how DNA is organized because DNA structure doesn't just end at the helix. DNA itself is actually wrapped around protein clusters that are called histones. These histone DNA spirals are packed together into the nucleus at different densities based on how often the cell needs to access the DNA that's wrapped around those histones. So certain parts of your genome, which you only needed while you were a developing fetus, those can be densely coiled away, never really to be accessed again once you hit a certain age. Whereas other pieces of your genome, which code for things like allowing your skin cells to replicate or making new gene products that you need every single day, those are very um, what we call open strands of DNA, where they're loosely coiled around their histones. They're not bundled into a dense package. So understanding that DNA forms into a coil helps us understand a lot about how DNA works and is used and the function of the DNA itself. So you mentioned those loosely packed areas of DNA. So what about those areas of DNA are important to access? So oftentimes, these loosely packed areas of DNA contain things that we call genes, which the cell needs to access quite often. And 
A gene is essentially the hereditary unit of DNA. So a gene specifies a stretch of DNA, which codes for a product of some sort. We used to only think it was proteins, but we now know it can be DNA, we can know it can be RNA, but genes code for a certain product. And the cell can access these genes to make that product and then package them away, can use them again, and the cell has tons of these. Genes are incredibly important, and when these genes are normal and intact, everything is fine, your cell does what it's supposed to do. But there are occasions where your gene, where the DNA in the genes can be damaged or misplaced, and this can lead to pretty big consequences. Different things that can damage or injure the DNA are photons from the sun. If you spend too much time in the sun, the radiation can damage your DNA, um, sometimes your cells can just make mistakes when they are replicating. It happens. Oftentimes that gets fixed by mechanisms we'll talk about later. And sometimes these mistakes aren't corrected, and therefore you can be left with a sort of a typo in your genome, which is called a mutation. And these mutations can either be when a DNA base is left out, which is called a deletion, or misplaced with the wrong base, which is a mutation. Or sometimes, in certain situations, different pieces of different genes can be moved around the entire genome. You see this a lot in cancer cells, where there's a lot of genetic instability, which means that you can lose chunks of genes and chromosomes. When talking about mutations, it's, it's those bases, those A's, T's, C's, and G's that are getting swapped or changed. And by changing just a single base, you completely change the product that comes out of that gene. And in some places, you can have a mutation and in the genome, and there's no problem. This mutation happens. The cell is fine. It's not even using that DNA anyway. Everything is fine. But in certain situations, this mutation or deletion or rearrangement can cause a very big problem. And when this comes up, this is usually referred to as a genetic disease. So Kelsey, what are some examples of specific genetic diseases that arise from mutations? There are a number of diseases which are genetic at their base. And there's an argument that most diseases are genetic at their very roots, but there are several diseases that we have found the exact genetic components to. So sickle cell disease is a disease which devastates large numbers of people, and this is caused by just a single nucleotide change which changes the shape of the hemoglobin protein, which is the oxygen-carrying protein on um, red blood cells. And if this hemoglobin protein is, the shape has changed, instead of your red blood cells being like nice little flat donuts, they, in fact, they sickle. So they curve together sort of like a C, and they don't do their job as well. They get stuck in your vessels. They don't carry mm -hmm. oxygen quite as well. Because yeah, the hemoglobin itself, like you said, is the oxygen-carrying protein. And if it's not functioning, you're not carrying oxygen as well to all the tissues in your body that need it. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to think about DNA in the context of one cell. But this is one mutation in one base out of three billion, billion bases that causes a whole body-wide effect. Another sort of disease that is genetic at its base is cystic fibrosis. Also, Huntington's disease, we know the exact genetic basis for this, and people can be genetically tested to see if they are carriers for this inherited genetic disease. But the thing about genetic diseases is that this genetic disease has to be passed down from parents, so it has to be inherited. 
And these diseases only get inherited through the germ cells or the sperm and the egg. If you spend too much time in the tanning booth or are incredibly unlucky and you receive and you end up developing a melanoma on your arm, your child is not going to develop melanoma if you have a kid later in life uh, because that's not your germ cells. But the problem lies in when it's your hereditary cells, your sperm, your eggs that carry these mutations, that is when these are inherited. So you and I, as scientists, we're interested in studying these diseases, right? So what can we do to study these genes in the lab? It's really complicated to try to study diseases as actual patients have them because doctors are there to treat patients and to make them feel better. And researchers are here to understand why this disease happened in the first place, how we can treat it, how we can stop it, develop better treatments, and how we can prevent it from happening in the future. And to do this, we need to recapitulate this genetic event that is happening in patients who have this illness but we need to put it in a model where we can study in a plate of cells or a model organism. And this is where the idea of genetic engineering comes into play. With genetic engineering, what we can do is we can take a dish of cells and we can introduce the same mutation into these cells that we see in patients. And then we can see what changes happen when this genetic event is happening. And we can see what happens when we try to introduce different treatment options or different conditions to understand how it's happening and how we can make it better. But this is very challenging. There is a lot of DNA, even in cultured human cells in a dish. There's a lot of DNA and sequencing is incredibly expensive and takes a very long time. We mentioned that the human genome has about 3 billion bases. One of the goals of the Human Genome Project was to bring down the cost of whole genome sequencing to $1,000, and we're getting there. Even so, sequencing is incredibly expensive. So to sequence the entire genome, it takes a lot of money, it takes a lot of time, and it takes highly specialized equipment that not all institutions have. But since this Human Genome Project does exist, and we do know what the human genome looks like, This has led to understanding the genomes of a lot of other creatures as well that we are able to use as model organisms to study in the lab. And some of these model organisms that are pretty commonly used are worms, bacteria, Drosophila, more commonly known as the fruit fly, or bane of my existence, zebrafish, and the most common mammal used, which is the mouse. For all of these organisms, the research community has developed technologies to change their genetic code to recapitulate human disease, but also to understand more about how genes work and understand more about the normal biology. Part of the motivation for sequencing the whole genome and why that's important in the context of genetic engineering is you have to know what you're targeting, right? Because we're interested in these genes, but if we don't know what they are or where they're at, it makes things difficult. And these genes that we know of, that code for a product that we know, they make up a very small percentage of the whole human genome. That's not even talking about any other organism. I mean, it's less than 10% of the whole human genome that codes for a product that we know. But we have a lot of this genetic code, and we now know that there are diseases that are dictated by this genetic code. We know that there are certain proteins and gene products that are critical to function of certain tissues, like your eyes, your neurons, like we talked about in the last episode. And when we want to understand how those work, we turn to genetic editing. So there have been a lot of different tools that we have for genetic editing in the past. 
but in particular, one of them has been receiving a lot of limelight in the recent years because it is so powerful, so accurate, and relatively inexpensive and fast. And this is CRISPR-Cas9. So CRISPR-Cas9 is, I think everybody is going to start hearing a lot more about it if you haven't already. And it's probably important to note that it's not really changing how we edit genes. It's changing how well we edit them. And it's increasing the efficiency and making things much faster. While decreasing the off-target effects, which can happen with some of the old technologies like zinc finger nucleases and talons and using viruses to edit the genome. So we as scientists use genetic editing tools all the time. So we're always wanting to change genes. We're wanting to take them out, put others in. um, Add them back when they're lost. (laughs) To better understand human biology. Because there's really no better way to figure out what something does than to take a sledgehammer to it and knock it out of the DNA and see what happens. That's a very biochemist way of thinking. Just take a sledgehammer and bust it apart. (laughs) For example, so as a personal experience, I'm working with bacteria right now, and I am adding DNA to the E. coli as a way of expressing a protein of interest so I can study it. And bacteria are pretty easy to work with. Now doing that with, say, human skin cells cultured in a dish is much, much more challenging. Because that was my PhD, and I spent many years trying to coax unruly melanoma cells to take up my DNA because I wanted them to make a protein that melanoma cells shut down when they become melanoma cells from their normal melanocytes. Uh, We actually proposed using CRISPR-Cas9 in our lab. It's pretty sweet. So the protein I work with may have a second function that we've never realized before. We've worked with this protein for 60 years. Not we, me, me, but like the scientific field has worked with it for 60 years. Jackie looks great for her age. So it may have this second activity, but we couldn't figure out what it was in a test tube. So we proposed in a grant submission using CRISPR-Cas9 to knock out what we thought was the catalytic site on our protein. We were going to make a single base pair change and then see what the phenotype was. So see what changed about those cells. For the second part of our show, we would like to welcome Dr. J. Vivian to the podcast. Dr. Vivian is the Scientific Director of the University of Kansas Medical Center Transgenic and Gene Targeting Institutional Facility, which is a big, long title for the fact that Jay runs a lab that facilitates helping researchers take their research questions and translate that into a genetically modified mouse system. And he does this by modifying mouse embryonic stem cells And anytime in the following interview that we discuss embryonic stem cells, these are exclusively mouse embryonic stem cells. Dr. Vivian, thank you so much for being with us on the show. We're really looking forward to speaking with you. So to start off, how did you get into science? Oh boy, how did I get into science? I I guess, I don't know. I, I grew up on a farm and I've always been around animals and plants and all the different shapes and sizes of of life. And I've always been interested in that. So I've always had an interest in science broadly defined. 
what really got me into where I am now is when I was in college, I took a, a genetics course. And it was a bit of a, as an upper level sort of a survey course. And uh, one thing, a few things that were discussed were these this new and exciting technology of embryonic stem cells and how we can genetically modify them. That's what kind of really led me in. But I've always had an interest in science and I think particularly the biology and the biology of life and how the diversity of life forms. And really that ultimately is a question of genetics, the underlying basis of why do we have five fingers and why do we have two eyes? And really, really basic questions like that all come down to a genetic basis. So your, your position here at the university is the director of the transgenic core. So your whole purpose is helping researchers create these organisms to address different scientific questions. Absolutely. It, we're uh, institutionally and programmatically supported core facility for helping investigators make genetically modified mice and stem pluripotent stem cells uh, for the Kansas City area and the University of Kansas. We provide a variety of services related to that and also other support services for people using mouse models just to kind of help them out. But we have been very proactive, I think, in trying to identify new technologies that we can integrate into the toolbox to help out investigators here. Could you just briefly tell us what genetic engineering or genetic editing is? Sure. Genetic engineering is the process in which we alter the genome of a particular organism. In the case of an experimental organism, the idea is, is we can go in and alter the genetic material and to try to either understand the genome and the genetic material or to utilize those genetic alterations to uh, create a model for studying disease. At least that's what's relevant for us in a, in a, in a medical setting. Well, what does that mean? Well, DNA is our genetic material. So what we're going in, what we're doing is going in and changing the DNA of a particular organism. And ideally, with the intent of either studying gene function or um, uh, modifying it to, to model or mimic a human disease. So is mimicking a human disease one of the primary motivations behind creating a transgenic organism? Certainly in the environment in which we work. In, the, in, a, in a medical school, we are driven to understand human disease and find ways of understanding how a disease arises and for identifying treatments. So that is a major driving force for a lot of what we do obviously here at the University of Kansas Medical Center. There's a lot of questions that can be asked that aren't necessarily health-driven that genetically modified organisms can be used in a research setting. Really just understanding fundamental questions of basic biology. What do genes do? How do genes uh, function to form the body plan? So important relevance in developmental biology, adult physiology, a, a lot of different questions can be asked through that. Are there any specific examples you can think of of genetically modified organisms, which we've used to learn a lot about basic biology and human health? Yeah, there's a lot of examples, and I think we'll talk a little bit about the mouse as a as a genetically modified organism for research. Um, uh, the, the mouse has been, for the past 30, 35 years, certainly the premier mammalian system for making genetic modifications for all the things we were talking about. A lot of the tools that we have available for mouse genetic modification have really driven the mouse as the premier system for this. So because of that, and the embryonic stem cell technologies was a major element of that, there are now thousands of strains of mice that have been produced that have various mutations 
or transgenic insertions or other alterations for us to ask all of those questions. And it's, it's, it's turned out to be a wonderful resource and font of knowledge for us to really understand those things. So there are thousands of examples, all the way from developmental biology to adult physiology to tumor progression. And it continues to expand because there's still a lot of the genome that we just don't understand yet. Going off of that, would you say that there are questions that we are able to answer now because of the tools and techniques that we have that we weren't able to ask, say, 20 years ago? Absolutely. Uh, and, and again, the, the mouse system really provides us with tools uh, for that, really just interrogating individual gene function. It's in the past 25 years, really, as is, is really much as this has really expanded in, in the past several years. It's been very exciting. And that type of modification to the genome of an organism can come in a lot of different varieties, right? Whether it's deletion or changing a gene or putting something in there that wasn't there before. It's kind of all part of it. Absolutely. And it's we have a wonderful toolbox in, in, the, in the mouse genetic system for us to do that, where we can make big pieces of DNA, we can put them into the mouse genome and ask questions if that's relevant for us, and we can go down to make single base changes, one teeny tiny nucleotide change out of those three billion bases in the mouse genome. Though Both of those things can result in dramatic effects on the organism. So you mentioned making very small single base pair changes. I'm assuming you're referring to the CRISPR-Cas9 technology that I know you use in your lab. Would you mind telling us a little bit about how CRISPR-Cas9 works and how it's so precise to editing the genome? Absolutely. It's been a, an amazing tool in the past really three years. It's fundamentally changed how we do things. And we've always had the ability, at least in mouse genetics, to do those types of changes. The CRISPR-Cas9 just makes it much, much faster. Uh, and it's been an exciting uh, a new tool for us. What is CRISPR-Cas9? Essentially what it is, it's a genome editing technology initially derived from a uh, microorganism. Um, and what it allows us to do, it allows us to go in and make very specific genetic modifications into, in this case, a fertilized egg of, of, a, of a mouse. And they're very precise, or at least it can be very precise if it's properly uh, designed and allows us to introduce a variety of alterations very, very quickly, uh, including, as you mentioned, single nucleotide changes, those single base changes that allows us to, to surgically alter the genome. And like I said, those types of things have been available in the genetics toolbox, but they were much slower and much more expensive to do. So this is where the CRISPR-Cas9 technology allows us to really accelerate those many different types of mutations, including the subtle mutations that we, we look at a lot. Is there an estimate on the time now it takes going from kind of concept or DNA to making an organism and how CRISPR has shrunk that? Sure. I mean, very roughly, at least when we make a genetically modified mouse, um, previously for making those types of point mutations three years ago, uh, we would have to go through embryonic stem cells. And so that process of going, which we could do still, and we still use that tool a lot, genetically modify the embryonic stem cell, introduce that back into an embryo, and then passage that genetic alteration through the germline to make a genetically modified strain. That whole process can take a better part of a year. CRISPR-Cas9 technology removes about half of that time and effort, and really even a, a lot more potentially. So it allows us to go from a better part of a year to make a genetically modified mouse down to perhaps four to six months. And, and that's a lot of time. 
Are there still any challenges that exist in your field, even in light of this wonderful new technology? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of a lot of them are technical. Um, it's it's still an unknown and an ongoing, evolving field, the genome editing field, in terms of how specific are these reagents, how precise are they? You know, in a perfect world, we can just precisely surgically alter just that one part of the genome that we want to. In reality, there's a lot of evidence for potential for these reagents to have effects in other parts of the genome. So it's always what we call off-target effects. So it's something we always have to keep in mind, um, although we can make the mouse uh, strain that we want to generate and alter, are there other things happening that we don't want? So a lot of that is technical. A lot of it also revolves around being clever. Uh, there are a lot of things we can do with genome editing well beyond just that little point mutation we're discussing. And a lot of that just comes down to well, being very clever about what can we actually do to leverage these techniques. So there's been a lot of debate lately about the potential for off-target effects from the CRISPR-Cas9 system. Where do you stand on that? Uh, with respect to the mouse, it's manageable. And I come from a field where we have had to introduce mutations that oftentimes have a lot of other undesired mutations in it. And so, in, in, in my opinion, it's very manageable. The empirical data suggests that, at least the ways in which we're currently using these tools, it's not a big deal. And even if it is, there are ways we can just monitor it and, and work around it. So, um, I'm coming from a perspective that it's very, very manageable. And there's a lot of interest or discussion and controversy about using these for non-research organisms, and that's where we really have to pay attention to, is this the right tool, and what are those potential off-target effects? Is there a reason why the mouse is such a broadly used model of human disease? There are a couple reasons for it. Um, first, a mouse is a mammal, and humans are mammals. And so the thought is that many of the processes we study in the mouse are similar in the human. It's not always the case, but it's a good place to start. So a, a mammal is a very good place to start. Well, why the mouse? Two reasons. Uh, the, the mouse is a small organism, and it's, a, it's easy to take care of. We have about 100 years of history of the mouse genetics community, where we have different strains of mice that have been available for many years. What have really opened it up in the past 30 years is the technologies of embryonic stem cells, which were, had been developed in the late 70s, really came into their own in the 80s, and when I started in graduate school, it was a burgeoning field, and it's still a very important technology. The fact we can grow a cell type in the laboratory, genetically alter it, and then use those cells for making strains of mice that really distinguish the mouse as a research model compared to really any other, certainly mammalian species. So essentially, we just developed all the tools around this organism, and it's just a foundation of technology. The, the tools are in place, and people have leveraged that for, for many years to create a, a, a plethora of, of genetic modifications. So it's not just the next mouse that gets made in our facility, which is great, but it's also you can relate and understand and compare that genetic modified organism to the many, many other modified strains that have been created over the years. And it seems like people share mouse strains quite a bit, too. I don't need to create a new strain of mice that has diabetes because that's already been done. Absolutely. And the, and the, the, the community is very good at sharing research strains. We even have a variety of uh, repositories across the country where people have made strains of mice and then hand them over to different entities that can either cryopreserve those strains for later use 
or distribute them for other scientists. Uh, and oftentimes it's one of the first things, one of my many jobs as the, as the scientific director of the facility, when someone comes to ask, hey, I want to make this genetically modified mouse, the first thing I always look is, well, has someone already made it? And oftentimes the easiest way to make a mouse is to get it from somebody else. So we've made a lot of advances in the technology and the understanding of editing the mouse genome. Can you see a little bit ahead about the writing on the wall for where the field is moving? We've got this great new tool, but there's always something bigger and better on the horizon. Do you have any speculation about that? I really think it's more of a function of using that to really start combining the tools that we have available with a lot of these burgeoning human genetics and genomics technologies that are becoming available. And one example of this is what's becoming more and more feasible is when a patient uh, comes into the hospital and if the physician cannot obviously identify the disease that the person may have, they'll sequence the person in the family's genome. And so oftentimes that can be useful as a diagnostic tool to say, hey, based on these, these genetic variants that have been identified in a patient, we can diagnose the disease, but oftentimes novel variants arise. And so where I see this being really exciting is allowing us to really understand diseases, particularly undiagnosed diseases or rare diseases or diseases of unknown origin, and combining the human genetics tools and information that's coming out of that with the, the mouse tools. And I think that's an exciting area. The challenge is the mouse is a very useful tool, research, research tool. It's, a mouse is not a human. And so I, I think that's always a, an ongoing challenge in the field is I think the mouse is going to be a tremendously useful tool, but there's going to be plenty of examples and diseases and uh, phenomena that we can't accurately model in the mouse. And unfortunately, we don't have a really good way of predicting that. The phrase that comes to mind is uh, all models are wrong, some models are useful. I hear that one bandied around a lot. Absolutely, and, and it's um, and, and and the mouse is no different. It's it's uh, there's tremendous value to it, but we always have to pay attention to comparing, particularly when we want to utilize this as a model for human disease. I didn't even think about the possibility of using a mouse model to model a human disease that we don't know the basis for. And do you think that that is completely thanks to the advances we've made in genetic editing? It certainly makes it a lot easier, and many times the these uh, rare variants that come out of patient genome sequences are very subtle changes. And as we discussed, we have the ability now to make those subtle changes and essentially take those subtle changes that are identified in a human and put those self-same variants into a mouse model and ask, well, what does that variant do? So, so the genome editing technology in CRISPR-Cas9 just allows to do it a lot faster, and I think that's a uh, very useful because we have genomes upon genomes of data in our computers and figuring out as reasonably quickly as possible what is the best way to understand those variants. That's a, uh, a real challenge. Is there anything that you would like people to know about genetic editing or how scientists are using these tools? Kind of as a take-home message. Mm -hmm. I think what's important for everybody to understand is the reasons why we do these things. As we continue to push our understanding of human disease, that these models are going to be very valuable. And I know there's a lot of controversy with using animal models for research, and it is a, uh, an important thing for us to, to think about and consider, but also to understand that these are very valuable tools for us to understand human disease. 
fundament, many, many fundamental advances have been made by using animal models. And we do have a lot more respect and regard for how we, the treatment of lab animals. There are large committees and oversight groups that are in place to make sure that they're treated ethically and appropriately. And there's large teams of veterinarians at every institution that houses lab animals. Absolutely. And we work very closely with them. And I, I think our facility is a very important tool to make sure and a tremendous confidence that all these research models are treated with the utmost of, of respect. For our Mythbusters segment today, we're going to be deconstructing the claim that talc powder can cause ovarian cancer. We'd like to thank Rebecca for submitting this idea for our Mythbusters. This was actually such a fascinating topic to read that we are going to make it into a blog post and talk more about some of the studies behind this claim on our blog at flyoverstatescience.com. So to start with the idea that talc can cause ovarian cancer, this seems like kind of a big stretch, right? Well, this idea comes from the fact that there have been six lawsuits within 2016 and 2017 alone right now against Johnson & Johnson from women who have claimed that their lifetime of perineal application of talc powder through Johnson & Johnson products has given them ovarian cancer. To establish this, perineal application of talc means that these women were applying it to their genitals. And the verdicts in all of these cases so far, the courts have awarded these women with ovarian cancer their settlements. So Johnson & Johnson in 2016 alone paid out more than $300 million in settlements. So there is enough evidence to find Johnson & Johnson at fault for at least not warning people that their talc-containing products could have this implication. But before we talk about whether or not talc can cause cancer, what is talc? Talc itself is a very fine crushed mineral powder, which is commonly used, less so now, but um, historically very commonly used for its moisture-absorbing properties. Talc structure under a microscope is a series of small, fine tubes. For its moisture-absorbing properties, talc has been used in everything from talcum powders or older versions of baby powders to personal hygiene products to cosmetics. Now, when we think about the structure of talc, like a series of small tubes, another molecule comes to mind, which is asbestos. And if any of you have ever watched day TV, daytime TV like me, you'll have seen some of these law firm commercials which talk about asbestos having caused lung cancer. Asbestos is another mineral that happens to often naturally co-occur with talc. And asbestos is also shaped like a series of small tubes when you inhale asbestos, it can aggravate your lung tissue, and this has been shown to promote lung cancer. So there have been concerns that because of its similarity and tendency to co-occur with asbestos, that talc could potentially be carcinogenic, and these concerns are brought up as early as the 1960s. Is there any evidence that talc, when inhaled, could cause lung cancer, like asbestos? So there have been suggestions about this, that it could be, but as far as I know, people haven't studied it since talc is generally not included in products that are like aerosolized. Mm. Uh, it tends to be in things where it's more densely packed. But I would think that because of the similarity in structure, it's definitely wise to not apply it to your anywhere where you could be breathing it in. So to study whether or not talc actually causes cancer, we have to look at 
humans because this is too complex of a system to recapitulate in the lab with organisms like we talked about in our earlier segment with Dr. Vivian. A note on human studies, because this is a soapbox that I like to go on, which is that human studies are very difficult to do. People are not very good lab animals. They have their lives, they have their normal routines, and even though we try, we don't have very good memories. And a lot of these human studies are retrospective, which means that what we do is we ask patients who have a certain cancer or who don't whether or not they have ever done X behavior or Y behavior, in this case, use talcum products on their genital region, and if so, how often. So sometimes the recall is is a little bit confused. Maybe the frequency is messed up. Also, when we do questionnaires like this with people who already have cancer, it is sometimes selecting for a certain population of people who already have cancer. There could be other factors in their lives which have contributed to this, such as a genetic predisposition that we don't know of yet. Certain lifestyles are associated with ovarian cancer. So if these studies don't control for all of these things, which is a lot of things, it's very hard to tell what is an actual causative relationship. The other sort of way that we do studies, instead of looking back, is moving forward. So we recruit a group of people at a certain point in life, and then we collect data about them as they move about their lives moving forward. But these studies take a really long time, and they're very expensive, and it's really hard for us to get good data out fast in any sort of a budget-friendly manner because cancer takes time. It tends to be a disease of age, and these things just happen as people get older. You can't rush them. They will happen when they happen. So these studies are called observational studies, and they take a long time and a lot of money. So I'm going to talk about a couple of these studies, sort of just to summarize the confusing state of the data when it comes to the association between talc and ovarian cancer. And one of these observational studies that looked at this association was one of the famous ones called the Nurses' Health Study. And this study followed 100,000 women around, and they looked at the women who used talc and didn't use talc. And what they found was that there was no overall risk for talc usage and ovarian cancer. But for women who used it daily, there was a moderately elevated risk for one of the five subtypes for ovarian cancer. Another study was relatively unconvinced by this. So what they did was they gathered data from a number of other studies, threw them all together, and reanalyzed that data. And what they found was that for a regular daily usage, there was a modest but statistically significant increased risk for one subtype of ovarian cancer. But again, this was very low. Was it the same subtype that was distinguished in both studies? No, interestingly enough, this was different. So the second one that was found was epithelial ovarian cancer, which is one subtype. And the first subtype that was found was invasive serous um, ovarian cancer. So not only is there a disagreement in whether or not it's a significant risk, but there's disagreement in what subtype. Yeah, unfortunately, it's really convoluted, and it's hard to study ovarian cancer in human studies anyway, because ovarian cancer affects a small number of women every year, which is great, because it's a very devastating disease, but... At the end of the day, the yearly occurrence of ovarian cancer is only about 23,000 women per year. So it's hard to keep track of all these people, and it's hard to recruit enough people to do a really good 
good, robust study with numbers that we like. And there were other studies that were done that we're going to talk about on the blog, but the results are a little wishy-washy. Some found a like 11% increased relative risk. Some found no risk association whatsoever. The data seemed to be out. But notably, when people looked at whether or not daily use had an increased risk compared to occasional use, there doesn't seem to be an increased risk based on increased exposure. When we're talking about whether or not things can cause cancer, what we look for is what we call a dose-response effect, which is if you increase the dose, you increase the response. If you increase the tobacco smoked, you increase the risk that you will develop lung cancer. Well, what most studies have found was if you increase the talc application, you don't necessarily increase the risk of ovarian cancer in a linear fashion. So using no talc, no ovarian cancer, some talc, some ovarian cancer risk, etc. So there's a lot of contention as to whether or not talc actually causes ovarian cancer. There could be other lifestyle factors that are a part of this that our human studies just haven't seen. There are a lot of different things that can go into causing cancer. So it's important to look at all these studies, but it's also important to take them with the grain of salt that human studies are very imperfect. But overall, the results have been fairly insubstantial. When we look at the official statements on the link between talc and cancer, The National Cancer Institute, which is associated with the United States National Institute of Health, has weighed all of the evidence, and their official statement is that the weight of evidence does not support a link between perineal talc exposure and ovarian cancer, as the results have been incredibly inconsistent. The International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is a part of the World Health Organization, has stated that based on the limited evidence from human studies that there is a link to ovarian cancer, they classify the genital use of talc-based body powder as possibly carcinogenic to humans. Everyone for themselves should weigh their own personal risk. However, flyover state science ultimately has decided that there is a lot of conflicting data, and scientifically speaking, the jury is still out. But however, while we can't definitively say yes or no, we suggest that if you feel concerned about it, there are a lot of great alternatives. If you are a genital talc user, uh, Johnson & Johnson and most common baby products are now cornstarch-based instead of talc. Talc powders are actually a lot harder to come by than cornstarch-based powders. So if you'd like something that has the similar moisture-wicking effects, we recommend cornstarch, which is incredibly safe. So we'd like to thank Bryce Jensen for making our jingle. We forgot to thank him last week, but he made our intro music. We'd like to thank Dr. Vivian again for his wonderful interview and take for his time in talking with us about his core facility. We'd like to thank Dr. Rosalind Franklin for her amazing science and all of the great work that she did in helping us understand DNA. We'd also like to thank Rebecca again for submitting the Mythbusters topic for today. And many others. And thank you, listeners, if you're still with us. We look forward to talking with you next time. We've got some great shows coming down the pipe. And thank you for visiting our webpage and subscribing to us on iTunes and Google Play.